Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to talk about a theory that says morality cannot be viewed in isolation of its social relational context. What's our social relational context? What's the one with the pimp and the prostitute? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's kind of like that one. I'll leave it to the listeners to decide who's who's who. (laughs) Hint, the the one with the haircut of the haunted child is (laughs) is the pimp. By the way, let's. Uh, I want to hear from that guy again. I love that uh, email. We didn't really. I don't even think we actually responded, except for laughing at the haunted. Well, the, even though like yeah, it was a funny email, I, I was. <laughs> you were distressed. <laughs> I was distressed by it. Yeah. Uh, All not- right. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about. And I think we're both a little. I don't think we've ever been this nervous to do a podcast. <laughs> no. Even though we don't have a guest. Yeah, and I think that it merits mentioning that it's the first week of I- school and we're like really stretched thin. Like, like yes. if you could see Tamler's eyes right now, the puffs under his eyes look like, like <laughs> the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man is just hanging out. <laughs> Two Stay Puffed mar- Marshmallow Men that have painted themselves in blackface <laughs> exactly. for some minstrel show, and, uh, <laughs> and they're dancing, and they're slowly. now dancing under my eyes, <laughs> like swaying slowly. You just no, need- and I think, and it's a bad combination because the other reason we're nervous is because we both love this uh, work that we're going to be discussing today. And we don't want to fuck it up. We don't want to fuck uh, up this know, discussion. Right. We figure we get one, maybe two chances at this, and, um, right. and we want to do it justice. Because when you talk about, you know, when we talk about just a topic, right? We're not like actually, we have no real responsibility to the thousands of authors who have written on the topic. But when you talk about just a paper, you got to do it justice. And, and it's it, and it, not just that, but also just that I think we both think this paper has huge implications. That it's uh, it's right on so many levels. It's really important for understanding moral psychology and moral philosophy, for that matter. I don't want to. I don't want that to uh, right to to get lost in the, yeah. to get lost. All right, but before we talk about that paper, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about. Well, first, business. Rate us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Support us by clicking through at our Amazon link. And um, you can also donate to the podcast with the donate button. I want to talk about this uh, Sam Harris challenge. Speaking of money, Paul Bloom, you and I have been exchanging some emails about this. Right. For those of you who don't know it, Sam Harris, uh, author of The Moral Landscape, uh, offered a public challenge to all of his readers, um, and this is how he describes it. It's been nearly three years since The Moral Landscape was first published in English. 
I love that. Was first published in English. <laughs> but yeah, it's been translated. <laughs> You're like already, like he can't even get through the first part of the sentence without. <laughs> Why not just first publish? I really hated the Finnish version. You know, the English one was awesome. The Chinese one was okay. Uh, I'm assuming that we've all read most of the translation. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, I've only read English, French, and uh, Farsi. Okay. And in that time, it has been attacked by readers and non-readers alike. Many seem to have judged from the resulting cacophony that the book's central thesis was easily refuted. However, I have yet to encounter a substantial criticism that I feel was not adequately answered in the book itself and in subsequent talks. So, I would like to issue a public challenge. Anyone who believes that my case for a scientific understanding of morality is mistaken is invited to prove it in 1,000 words or less. You must address the central argument of the book, not peripheral issues. The best response will be published on this website, and its author will receive $2,000. If any essay actually persuades me, however, its author will receive $20,000, and I will publicly recant my view. What do, you, uh, what, do you, what do you think the chances are that Sam Harris will pay out that and publicly recant his view? I mean, right. If you're Vegas right now <laughs> and you're putting odds on Sam Harris is going to get a thousand-word essay that convinces him that he's wrong and so pay $20,000 and publicly recant his view, I would say it's somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 to one odds <laughs> is what I would put it at. And I think that's... You know what? If, I wouldn't if, take those odds. It's not worth. If he publicly recants his view, I will. I, I will personally travel to, to to find him, knock on his door, and and give him a big kiss, <laughs> which I, which I admit is already sort of dirtying the pool because that might add extra sort of persuasive. <laughs> he, he might actually change it for that. So uh, let's not tell just, him. Listen, he, just want, he might want the kiss. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how many people have paid $20,000 just to get a kiss from you? Right. <laughs> the list of people. So, I mean... No, so, yeah. okay. Paul and, and you and I, as you said, had an email exchange. And at least what he, at least he tried to give it a, a go to, to say, you know, maybe this will increase dialogue. Maybe there's something really good here. And maybe there is. Maybe, maybe you know, even if Sam Harris himself doesn't... doesn't yeah, convinced become convinced you know maybe just will bring attention to some important issues and people will talk more about it i I was skeptical though i mean i i don't i just i think that writing a book about this is the way that you get people to discuss it and plenty of people have discussed it and one of the things that i find there's been a resulting cacophony cacophony yeah there's (laughs) part of the reason this will apparently be just you know a beautiful like it'll be a symphony right it's you know it's none of this john cage shit (laughs) yeah it's actually going to be mozart um that's what part part of what bothers me and and again i know you always make fun of me but i really i like sam harris he's a good guy he looks like ben stiller and that's enough for me and he <laughs> well that's why you want to kiss why like, um he's actually better looking than, sam, than ben stiller uh, for the record but Can i doubt stop that, talking I, about how good looking i doubt i doubt that ben I mean, we have to stop the podcast right now i'm serious well, we have to stop the po- but I, I can't do the podcast you anymore. can't you're done uh, no you're done. no we're done <laughs> thank you listeners for all your support uh, it's been fun while it lasted but this is our is second last episode like 
um, caressing Sam Harris's. Uh, no, but, but I'm saying that to buffer what I'm going to say right now, which is I think it's disingenuous in the sense that there's been plenty of valid criticisms and like actual fairly real deci- ones. decisive criticism. Yeah, so what you could do is what some what some philosophers do, you know, uh, is you know just put up a website linking to all of the various critiques. And, you know, maybe write an article defending yourself against all of the things that have been published, say, in outlets as, as reviews. Not just not, – not pay people a thousand bucks to, like, blurb to, to – Well, uh, yeah. he, he – I mean, in fairness to him, he's done it. But, again, he does it in that arrogant, dismissive way, right? Right. And so like, what's, the, what's the – yeah, who's the thing that, like that these the, won't be treated in the same way? How, for instance, should I respond to the novelist Marilyn Robbins' paranoid anti-science gabbling in the Wall Street Journal where she consigns me to the company of lobotomists in the mid-20th century? Uh, I mean – you know, I don't know. I, I, I can understand that, that it's distressing when you get comments that are totally ad hominem, but I don't think that the right – But that's, but that's what he does, right? He, I know. he thrives yeah. off criticism that is, uh, that is more – illegitimate than the views that he himself is espousing. And so, you know, that, of course, makes his view look good. But when it comes to actually reconciling with the tough questions from very mature, intelligent people, that's where I don't – I've never seen him address it in a real way where he was open to change his mind. Uh, One of the things that that I was saying in our exchange uh, over email was that – one of, one of the things I don't like is that this has the air of objectivity. Like it has it has the right. surface features for maybe for someone and, who and purely open minded, like right. brave, open minded. Right, yeah. exactly. So, for instance, he he has recruited an, a judge, an, a third party sort of judge who I guess is well. That was afterwards. He had to yeah. be kind of shamed into doing that. He was going to judge it all himself. Right, right. but fair enough. He changed his mind. Yeah. Um, but when you read the, when, when you read the, the specifics of it, the, the judge is, is only there to kind of just ensure that, that, I, that there's no mudslinging or that, uh, then he says, uh, I reached out to the philosopher Russell Blackford for help. Russell is among the most energetic critics of the moral landscape. So good. And I'm very happy to see that he has agreed to judge the submissions, introduce the winning essay and evaluate my response. But then he says, of course, only I can say whether I find the winning essay persuasive enough to trigger a change in my position. But if I'm not persuaded, I'll have to explain why. And Russell will be there to see that I do without, do so without dodging any important points. So it's not like, you know, I, I was referring to some of these be- famous bets that physicists have made with each other where, you know, uh, Hawking or Feynman or these guys will say like, well, I don't believe that the Higgs boson exists. And then it turns out that, you know, p- scientists find it and then they have to pay up. It has this air of like of of that kind of thing, but in reality, the the, the criteria isn't even if smart people are convinced. It's just whether Sam Harris is convinced, <laughs> right? Uh, I like the one analogy you said. It's like saying I have the this was in the exchange with Paul. I have the biggest dick of anybody in the room, but I'm refu- in the room, but I'm not gonna take it out. And uh, you show me yours, and then it, and if I'm convinced that it's bigger than mine, I'll totally pay, <laughs> I'll pay you like five hundred dollars. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. You take out your dick. <laughs> And if I am convinced uh, that it's bigger than my dick, I will give you $20,000. Although then you'd have, to you have, presi- you'd, have, you'd have to have Russell t- check out your dick. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, A, if I'd be comfortable with that. I'm pretty sure he also wouldn't be comfortable with that. Uh, All right. Well, anyway, I, I'm interested to see what, what, what ends up happening. 
Let's talk about the essay. Should we take a break first, or should we? Yeah, let's take a quick. Let's take a quick break. Six in the morning, police at my door. <laughs> Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Today we're going to be talking about the work of Alan Fisk, and in particular, a paper which we'll post on our website, and we recommend that our readers at least look through. Moral psychology as relationship regulation. Moral motives for unity, hierarchy, equality, and proportionality. Really quick before we get to this, I I got to mention this thing uh, from our last podcast where uh, we, we listed our five greatest books, uh, you know, the ones that have most inspired us. And one of the things that I realized, I didn't realize it enough when we were uh, when we were doing the podcast, but when we when I was editing it, it sort of stuck out, is that you would always throw in that you had read your book, like, when you were really young. Like, yeah, I know. I mean, I read Gordel Eschelbach when I was, like, four years you mean, old. You mean that one yeah. time? You would, in you other words, by like, always, you, you mean that like one throwing time. it out there that you're this kind of, like, child genius. <laughs> so because Science. I said that for Gordel Eschelbach, Gordel Eschelbach. You, no, you said it about Feynman, too. And, I th- and, and, and the implication was there for pretty much all of your books, <laughs> all of them, before you were 10 years At least old, I didn't so. try to pretend like I was some sort of, like, uh, well versed like in literature and in the liter- literary uh, tradition. So what you're missing is when I said that I was too stupid to understand it back then and I think I'm too stupid to understand it now. And but that got, was such ooh, false modesty. We got it. Well, yeah, you, sure, sure, you be the judge of my intentions and motives. Um, <laughs> if, if I am that, convinced that I'm, that wasn't false modesty, I will give you $10,000. I mean, what I'm convinced of is that I'm the more humble person on this podcast. Is, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually one of the most humble people I know. Let's talk about this paper i read i first read this paper when i was uh <laughs> when you were 12 six months old <laughs> uh, no it's actually from 2011 right so. so published in psych review uh 2011 so it's actually fairly recent in terms of you know the pace at which i read journal articles at least it feels like yesterday and it's um it's one that that, that he's been working on though he's been working on this theory for a long time now it's actually a dual authored with, right, and I actually uh, should say Rye. Taj Rai is is the first author, and he he was a student uh, of Fisk's, and and he doesn't get nearly enough credit for this because, as as is always the case, um, the, the the more famous senior author gets gets most of the credit. But as yeah, so Rai and Fisk we should talk about, but sometimes we'll just refer to Fisk because this right. is his baby from the '90s, right? Right. Um, this and, theory, and Fisk is actually a, an anthropologist at UCLA, so this is. Uh, again, another reason I, I think uh, why I like the work so much is because of that that perspective. Um, he's 
what I was just going to say is I taught this paper once and I, I probably read it a day or two before I had to teach it. And I thought it was just awesome. And it, and it was also just very exciting. I remember thinking and telling to the class that it's just like a new toy or a new tool, this theory, like binoculars or something, something that allows you to see the world in a different way, to see our moral world in a different way than you saw it before. And, and the central thesis is and this I'll just I'll just read what he says. He says, "We argue that to elucidate the basis for moral judgment, we must abandon the assumption that moral judgments are based on features of actions independent of the social relational context in which they occur." In other words, did the action cause harm? Was the action unfair? Was the action impure? Rather, we must reconceptualize moral psychology as embedded in our social relational cognition such that moral judgments and behaviors emerge out of the specific obligations and transgressions entailed by particular types of social relations. So, you uh, know, this, this point that, that they're making here, I think, is, is worthy of, of its own discussion but I think it, it, we should spend a little bit of time talking about it because I think it really yeah. is uh, central to much of what we talk about. Uh, because while I'm like a huge fan, as everybody knows, of moral philosophy and, and normative ethics and metaethics and all those things, uh, there is a way in which the philosophical background, the philosophical work that has given rise to much of moral psychology – has caused this weird thing to happen where it makes total sense if you're a normative ethicist to try to figure out the appropriate rules. And so you might actually abstract, try your best to abstract uh, uh, rules from context because what you want to do is is use some sort of guideline for action that's independent of the particular time and place in which you're raised. And I think that that's not unfair if you're a philosopher. Now, the problem happens when you, t- when you take this and use it as the basis for a descriptive theory because that's just not how people actually go about making their moral judgments, right? Yeah, and I, I disagree with you that right, yeah, this no, is I, okay at the philosophical level. Yeah, and I, I, think, I, think, I think this paper can give a, a good indication of why, although it's very complicated. So let's talk about the theory itself before we – get too worked up about where we disagree about it. What is this theory trying to do? What's the overarching purpose of what this theory of moral psychology is positing? So uh, coming out of Fisk's work in anthropology that posits that there are four fundamental different kinds of relationships, uh, this is taking that work and saying this is important for understanding moral psychology. And the reason it's important is because moral judgments and moral psychology is fundamentally about social relationships. So it's a natural fit. It makes sense. I think what the theory is specifically saying is that if we want to understand the kinds of moral judgments we make, it makes sense to understand the kinds of relationships we have. And there are four basic kinds of relationships, and this will color the kinds of judgments you make through the, through essentially the motivation, the different motivations that we have when we're in these four modes. So you will be motivated in different ways morally depending on the relationship framework that you are in at that point. So the same moral question will 
we will be motivated to judge it differently depending on the relational context. Exactly. And I, this is a, a really nice thing about this theory. And it's something that, that, uh, that I just fundamentally do agree with. So let's take how we do moral psychology. Now we give people a, a, a scenario, a dilemma or a judgment, and we see whether they think that this act in the scenario or this actor in the scenario is right or wrong, blameworthy or, or not, or praiseworthy. And then we, uh, we give this to, to a bunch of different people and maybe we tweak the conditions. And if people make different judgments when the, the facts of the scenario are exactly the same, then we often just say like, oh, look, people are inconsistent or morality is spurious or people are making an error. But or that, a bias. Or right? there's yeah, some sort of bias. non-moral bias that's influencing the judgment. Right. right? And what, what this is saying is that the reason that people might make very different judgments for, very, for the same exact act is just because, look, like we have different completely the relationship that i have with you is very very different from the relationship that i have with my grandfather the relationship that i have with the present president of my university and if you don't take that into account then it seems it's it seems like you're just not you don't care about psychology the judgments that people give aren't giving you the data that as psychologists you th- you think you're getting right As you think you're getting data about people's moral psychology at that point but without specifying a socio uh, relational context it's not telling you anything right really, that, it's only a yeah, surface argue. it's only giving you a surface answer so yeah. so let's let's talk about the different kinds of relationship models he thinks there are four all of our moral judgments will derive from one of these four frameworks these are modes in which we relate to each other uh the first one is communal sharing so this is, is sort of what we what we mean by when we talk about collectivism. Uh, this is sort of everybody's equal. You look out for the group. Um, you know, this is everybody's equal within the group within, within your own group. Yeah. Right, right. But, that's, a, that's uh, an important. But and there's a very important distinction between the kind of obligations you have to your group and the kind of obligations you would have to members of an out group. Right. Food sharing norms come out of this as as something anyone can relate to. Just how you feel about your family, the kind of judgments you you make about a family member, in contrast to the kind of judgments you make about about strangers right. uh, even or even like maybe some close friendships because uh family does sometimes bring with it the next one which is authority ranking i am a cop and you will respect my authority so now instead of viewing everybody as sort of equal and and equally contributing to the group and sort of sacrificing and expecting that of the sacrifice um now what you have is is a high, hierarchical organization Right. So now once you're in the mode of authority ranking, you're actually sensitive to whether this person is higher status than you or lower status than you. And that comes with very, very different motivations. So you act right. differently when somebody is, is above you than when somebody is below you. Right. So like you and I roughly equal Well, I, again, you're my elder. So I, I really, <laughs> as, as a Latin American, I feel like I, I always have to remind myself to respect you. Yeah, you don't seem to remind yourself that often. <laughs> Maybe that's because I'm barely older than you. Uh, 
right. It's a so hard like one for so, Americans to grasp. <laughs> sometimes kind of fuck authority. You know, that, that there there is that thread of the hippie in us. Yeah, I, you know, I like to just think of mob movies where everybody has to pay up, right? Like it goes up to the Godfather. It goes uh, and right. so. All right, so that's uh, so the second framework that you can be looking at a moral judgment through is the authority ranking. The third is equality matching. And the motive there is equality, reciprocity. Right. Tit for tat. You know, tit for tat. Some of the judgments of I don't want to be taken advantage of because we're equal. You know, right. some of the judgments of, well, you know, in, in the ultimatum game, rejecting right. low offers. Fairness. It, you know, when, two, when a brother and sister are like, well, that's not fair. He didn't have to clean his room like that. It's like pointing out like, no, look, like we should we should abide by the same rules. It's 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 not it's unfair treatment, um, which is very different than a claim of unfairness in the authority match in the authority uh in the hierarchy right it's it's did you see the uh, experimental game the ultimatum game where the proposer is given a sum of money he has to make a a, a one-time offer to the responder and the the responder can either accept or reject the offer well uh they did this where they assigned who was going to be the proposer based on rank from scores on a quiz that they all took and if you had a higher score on a quiz that led to lower offers yeah. than when role assignments were random. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that's great. Bitch, you'll take my money. You'll like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Because I scored higher on the quiz, motherfucker. <laughs> Did you see my quiz score? <laughs> Did you even see my quiz score? You're lucky I'm giving you anything at all. Why are we just talking like some sort of... <laughs> it's like some really bad attempt at a ghetto uh, accent without... Uh, somewhat racist. Yeah. So. All right. Fairness is a different thing when you're talking about somebody who is more status uh, than you or, or of lower status. But in equality right. matching, same fucking rules for everybody. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. I think we've talked about this in a previous podcast. But, you know, when you go out to a meal with your really good friends, there's no like, okay, you got this. I got that. Um, let's see. You got the extra coffee, the espresso, <laughs> right. but I think I had a little more wine. So right. and you just try to figure out exactly how much you owe. This is at every academic conference. Right? Yeah. This is now. Well, I'll bet, well, John didn't drink, so we shouldn't charge him more. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Now, w- when you're making those kinds of judgments, which I just reject out of for reasons of like taste, but you're in the equality framework. Right. But you just wouldn't if you're really in the community framework, I you know. just don't think in those terms. And so you wouldn't do it. You kind of trust that things will work out. And if they don't, you don't really care because you're in an all for one sort of mood. When you're in a splitting the bill kind of thing, it's I don't want to get taken for a ride. I don't want to get taken advantage of, you know, to be paying for things I didn't personally ingest. Right. And so, you know, that leads to those awkward 25 minutes every time the check comes. The last, so the, one. The last one is market pricing. And that is you can put a price on stuff. You can actually... Uh, Even stuff that is initially and would seem incommensurable, right. you find a way to sort of match proportionally what exactly. You know. So, so if it's your if it's your family and you buy food, uh, we all take from you know we all take from the same cupboard. But now, imagine society gets a bit more complex, and Joe grows carrots, and you grow you grow wheat. You weed? you start wheat. Well, weed oh, too. Yeah. yeah. So you want to make an exchange, and even though carrots and wheat might not be on the same on the same scale, you, you come up with some sort of metric, and you you make an exchange, and then pretty soon you get to things like money, which is fungible, and and we can put a price on it. And so right. so now we put prices on all kinds of things. And one very clear kind of moral disagreement. 
that could emerge is if I came up and said, look, I've seen uh, Facebook pictures of your daughter. She seems very cute. I'd like to have her in my house uh, with my family. Uh, I'll give you $50,000 for your daughter, right? And you would... I'd be insulted. Uh, yeah. So for instance, I, you know, the only right answer to that is is no, you offend me. And, and it's not... When I say that, I'm not saying like make the price higher, right? Like I'm just saying like she's worth at least seventy five thousand, right? Like, seventy five thousand if she's worth a dollar, right? And, and yeah, even though we're forced to put prices on things, the right answer usually for things like that is if she's worth an infinity times infinity, or you know, just, you're just trying to drive a hard, harder bargain. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is by, you, by pretending to be a. This is like when you walk off the the, the used car, yeah, right. you know, like yeah. I'll go elsewhere. Um, did you ever just w- when you were uh, younger or maybe just last week, just b- play the game with your friends? Like how much money would it take for you to do this? And then the, this is just something really just insanely gross or, or offensive. Or just excruciating. I remember yeah. we did that with like seeing the movie Beaches. <laughs> and, you know, with things like that, there is a price. It's yeah. sort of the funny part of it was how high. The price would right. be depending on you know the movie or the thing, and, and yes, and, and most often this is with sex acts. Okay, so so then the, these four relational models fundamentally inf- influence what kind of motivations you have within a relationship. That then in turn influences what what kinds of how you morally evaluate actions, at which influences the emotions that you feel when people violate a, a norm, which influences the sanctions that you give, the kind of punishment that you. You think they deserve so all of this i think you know fundamentally is saying like we need to understand moral psychology by understanding how people relate to each other let's take another quick break now that we've listed the model and then we'll talk about the different implications the way it might explain moral disagreement moral diversity um, and then what the metaethical implications are for this model Very bad wizards. Uh, now that we've sketched out the relational theory of Fisk's, uh, Ryan Fisk used this framework as a, as a starting point for making some interesting claims about morality. I, I think, in particular, the, the most interesting claim is is that this helps us understand at least. So the limited claim is at least the psychology of moral disagreement. One reason people just don't don't get why they they disagree about morality is that they're fundamentally in different modes uh, in different relational modes and they're you they're making these judgments from a completely different motivational standpoint uh, right and he says there are two kinds of moral disagreement that can occur and it's them but one of them is if we apply different models to the same situation 
Um, and an example he gives, which I think is a good one, is you know animal rights, specifically talking about animal rights in the laboratory, where one side is saying, yes, I know that we're torturing these monkeys like your favorite researchers, but it's worth it in the larger sense because of all the humans it can potentially save. And in other words, they're looking at it from a market pricing point of view. And then you have the animal rights advocates who think that's almost as inappropriate as if you said that about a human. You know, like, well, yes, we're causing... 50 children or these 50,000 children to suffer, but it's going to save all these human lives in the future. Taking market pricing in that context, that would be considered inappropriate. So that's the framework or the model that the animal rights advocates are using, that this is community. This is communal sharing. These are, these are part of, these are like us and you can't do that to us. And they're using just the market pricing. That, right. You know. And so it's not – so I guess the claim is that it's not disagreement about facts. It's just motivation, although there is disagreement about facts that's fundamentally you – know, and we, we'll get back to this. And this I is mean, a weakness of the paper is that he yeah. doesn't acknowledge that a lot of these disagreements – also can stem about just disagreement about empirical facts that are relevant to, to that issue. Right. Yeah. One of the the points that I think are, is very valuable about this paper, and and John Haidt goes out of his way to make make this point as well, that moral disagreement is often a sincere, motive, morally motivated uh, judgment on both sides. And it's very easy to dismiss it as just simply wrong or misguided and not at least, at the very least, grant that the reason that people are, are making those judgments is because they, they're motivated to do the right thing. And I, I think this gets lost a lot in, in some of the more public uh, moral disagreements, these battles. So, for instance, as a, as a pro-choice as a pro-choicer, it does really upset me when pro-lifers do such horrible things like bomb clinics or whatever. But uh, at the same time, if sometimes I think if I really were convinced that abortion were murder, I hope that I would be motivated to do a whole lot to prevent it, right? Yeah. So it's – In know, other words, you're looking at the fetus more from a communal sharing or an equality yeah, uh, model exactly, uh, exactly. if you're pro-life and – we're looking at it, if you're pro-choice, more from a, you might call it equal treatment in the sense that women, just as men have rights over their body, women right. have rights over their body. So we're, and, and both sides are more motivated by legitimate, you know, moral concerns. Right. Exactly. And, and so while, while there might be disagreement about facts, the, the very least you can respect that they're not trying to be evil or, or just dismissive. What they're trying to do is do the right thing. There's another, you know, there's a whole set of uh, findings in social psychology that that get to this conflict that you described, this first form of moral disagreement, and that that I think it's been, it's, there's nice work done by Phil Tetlock and his colleagues, and by John Barron and his colleagues, who who talk about, uh, for Tetlock, he calls it the sacred values protection model, and he points to a lot of these cases in which you try to market price something that somebody views as sacred, and so most people have intuitions in our society that things like sex, at some level, sacred in the sense that they shouldn't be just bought and sold, that, that you're losing something by buying and selling them. Jay- Do you remember that indecent proposal movie, Demi Moore, <laughs> yes, Robert yeah. Redford? Exactly. I will give you a million, a million dollars, dollars to, to have sex with your wife. Yeah. I got money, I got security, I have businesses, but you have something that I just don't have. Well, I guess there's limits to what money can buy. Not many. Some things aren't for sale. 
such as? But you can't buy people. So what are you saying? You can't buy love? That's a bit of a cliche, don't you think? It's absolutely true. Well, let's test the cliche. Suppose I were to offer you one million dollars for one night with your wife. Even just the title of that, indecent. Yeah, proposal, exactly. Right? That's and right. It's not indecent because Demi Moore at that time was worth more than a million dollars. Exactly. Like it's not. A, it's not a debate about about <laughs> the price, right? I always thought if I were rich, I would just go around making people do crazy stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> just paying people to have sex with you. Well, no, I guess that would just make me a John. So a- another a- an example of where you're. I think using the same model but implementing it differently, a controversial example that he brings up is honor killings. Right. Uh, and this this actually – this example is what caused me to have the most problems. I mean so there is this sense where I'm OK saying you know, pro-lifers and pro-choicers are both motivated to do the right thing and they're just uh, – so we should understand this conflict in that context. But – uh, the Let's read what he case. says about this. If if you're following along, which I don't think <laughs> anyone has ever done, this is on page 62 of that article that we'll post. In honor cultures, a woman who has sexual relations outside marriage, even against her will, defiles her family, which is shamed and shunned. Other families will not marry members of the defiled family and often will not eat or drink or socialize with them. The only way to remove the family's shame and reintegrate the family into the community is to kill the polluted woman. Uh, reflects an attempt to reestablish unity both within the family and within the community. From within this, from this perspective, difference in our moral response to rape lies in the manner in which the CS model between daughter, family, and community has been constituted and how the impact of rape on these CS relations is construed. Some communities view the defilement caused by rape to be beyond repair. Others view it as less threatening. The moral motive of unity is the same, but it is resolved differently, leading to expulsion and care, respectively. Thus, although Westerners may find the act horrific, honor killing emerges out of the same moral motive as our own responses to rape. Uh, you know, for, okay. Okay, so let's talk, so, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this, yeah. This, again, the attempt here is to explain moral disagreement by pointing to these different moral motives. But I just think it falls flat in a really, really obvious way here because, look, it, fine. Like, if what you want to say is that the people who are doing these honor killings are also trying to do the right thing, presumably they're not trying to do the wrong thing. It's very rare to find no, but someone. No, but it's more than that, right? It's it's that they're trying to do the right thing within the community sharing relational context. I guess you know. I guess their That's motivation. That's what he's saying. Yeah, no, no, fine. But but it doesn't explain why there are plenty of communities that have this community sharing model as as the central one that don't do honor killings. I mean, it's not that we. It's when I hear about honor killings, it's not that I'm failing to understand that they're motivated to preserve their honor and that they think that their daughter has been defiled. It's that I disagree that getting raped is defiling to the community. Right. The, That's the really at the heart of the moral disagreement here. It's not that I, it's, it's not that once this is told, told to me that I'm like, Oh, that's why they kill women who've been raped. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a limitation, I would think, of the theory whenever it's it's used to explain this kind of disagreement. What's the explanation for why they're being implemented in right. these different ways? That's what you want to know. And, right. and to know that it's all still within that communal sharing is, is sort of limited. Uh, right. I mean, my yeah, I, I like to think that my communal sharing actually makes me want to go to the family and offer my, my help and condolences that this such a horrible thing happened. And my my beef is really with the the belief that that an innocent person getting raped uh, would, in fact, stain the honor of a family. You know. So here's where I mean, like, what if he said this often? Most often when there are disagreements about the right way to implement the same model, right, That's that could be uh, empirical disagreements or some sort of factual disagreements that it's the, that, that's at the bottom of those. In contrast to disagreements between where, where different models are being applied, those are much less likely to have empirical disagreements at the root. But here the empirical disagreement, or at least the factual disagreement, has to do with honor, because I'm sure that has some sort of religious basis, right? I, yeah. I just, I, I mean, so, okay, let me try this out. I, I think that that what this mod for all of the power of this model in understanding uh, the various motives that that give rise to morality it really has very little to say about the content of moral beliefs and when we speak of moral disagreement that's almost always the only thing that we mean when we say that we have a moral disagreement with somebody we actually mean you think that it's wrong to kill to kill a daughter who's been raped and i think that it's right and the motivational aspect of those is interesting. So it, it can be the case that, you know, I have a different mindset. So motivations don't have a natural fit with the content of belief. Um, so if I'm in market pricing, it's unclear what I would believe about this. Or if I'm in communal sharing, it's unclear what I would believe about this. No, but my point is, is that often a lot of that's going to depend on empirical information that we have access like just disagreements about what something's worth when you're talking about when you're both within the market pricing framework or model there could still be disagreement about what this thing or that thing uh is worth and that will often be explained by just a factual disagreement of some kind that could eventually be resolved that's my proposal anyway right whereas a disagreement that comes between two different frameworks is much less likely to be resolved and has at its root, it won't have this empirical disagreement in the way the within model disagreements. Right. So, so if this is to be a successful theory of moral disagreement, what you need is a priori set of predictions about what these, what, what disagreements these motives would predict. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's completely unclear because, as you say, we could both be in the market pricing uh, mode, a relational mode, and have factual disagreements about, about pricing. But we also could be within the communal sharing mode and have differences in sort of specific moral beliefs, such as whether uh, a rape victim dis dishonors family. Those That source of disagreement can't be explained. Different communal sharing cultures, uh, one of them does honor killing, the other one doesn't. This theory can't speak to that. Now, presumably, what you're saying is that uh, – and what they're saying is that 
Well, what it can speak to is disagreements in which there are uh, there are different relational modes that are in conflict, and that's the kind of disagreement that this theory can explain. But if you really want to explain that, you need to have a tight link between the relational mode and the content of the moral beliefs that are at, at odds with each other, right? Or, well, or let's take can... an ex- let's take another example of of intermodal oh. disagreement. Okay. I mean, I actually think one of the fascinating things about this was it can explain sort of intrapersonal disagreements, uh, both over time and even at the same time. But uh, the one example that he uses is soldiers who go to war, right? And in that context where communal sharing and hierarchy are, are the big models that motivate uh, what you do, uh, certain acts and actions will seem right or obligatory. And then when they come home and they're not in that context at all, they, there's no community like the army and there's no hierarchy to tell you what to do some of those acts they just won't be able to explain or justify to themselves because they're not they're no longer using that framework to judge their actions i I get i get that but i still so as a description of the motivations that that are at play uh during various times uh, I think this is this is right, sort of spot on. It's just that it still it doesn't it doesn't actually predict the content of what you do when you're in the communal sharing uh, in in the communal sharing mode or in the market pricing mode. And if it's going to be a, a theory that can that can explain moral disagreement, it has to do that, or else it's just not a theory of that. It's a theory so, of something else. It's just not one of. It's a theory of moral dis- of a certain kind of moral disagreement if it's going to predict disagreements where the two frameworks are being – different frameworks are being applied. But how can you predict it a priori? I, I guess as a sort of explanation for why when soldiers came back from Vietnam, you know, they were they, – they had been in this sort of very, very hardcore communal or hierarchical setting and then, now they came back and, and – I, you know, I, I take that there's conflict because they have to switch modes all of a sudden and they don't have that loyalty. So it would content- predict like post-traumatic stress syndrome, for example. That would be one of the things that it, that it could predict. Uh, you no, know, why are so many soldiers now it, no, uh, you, committing suicide? No, no, it doesn't predict that at all. I mean, you, there's, there's nothing in that theory that goes above and beyond. Just if there's a radical shift in, in, in the way you morally view the world and your actions can expect I, I guess, that to what be you a need, very jarring. I mean, there's an uh, empirical claim there that's not. That's what's the co- the cause of PTSD is, and so this, in the absence of knowing anything about PTSD, I, this theory does not generate a prediction about PTSD. You can explain. You can say, like, sort of, oh, I understand PTSD maybe because of this conflict. Like, it makes sense, but the, the burden would be on you to to show that PTSD is because of these. Well, I mean, okay, let's look at some of the language. So one of the things he says, relationship regulation theory predicts that intentionally harming others will be perceived as more or less acceptable and even morally praiseworthy depending on the social relational context within which it occurs. So something like torture will be seen as more or less acceptable depending on which model you're applying to to judge the act. 
such harm can range from everyday verbal aggression to full-scale ethnic conflict. Now, is that a sufficiently specific prediction for you? I don't think so. I put on your hat here as a, as doing as an empiricist and, and do a study. So what are you predicting? You're predicting that if I get people into a communal sharing mode, that they're going to be more consequentialist. I mean, what's so what's the specific here that this is... I mean, this is... It's very easy to explain and describe some of these. No, not when they're in the communal sharing mode, when they're in the market pricing mode, they will be less utilitarian in the communal sharing mode because there'll be no impartiality principle. But so, but so what was the claim here about torture? I, I, I agree that he's not being specific enough, but I take it the idea is you can't just say, look, is it acceptable to torture one little girl to save 20,000 lives? There will be one answer to that question if you're in the market pricing framework and another if you're approaching it from the communal sharing perspective. Wait, I thought that what you were saying was the communal sharing, like because you're so concerned about about saving the group, you would actually be okay with sacrificing a member. I don't oh, think well, so. Now, now, now you're at, now, I'm now not you're changing. saying for no, 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 no. You, reasons. You, what? No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making it. a claim about reason. You I'm would be reasons. like, it just depends on whether the person is in group or out group. If the person's out group, I mean, this isn't breaking news, right? You're going to be much more willing to cause harm than if the person is a member of the in-group when you are more likely to view that within the communal but, sharing but, context. But the, but the thing is that, that – see, this is the thing. It's like you've, you've actually made a couple of claims. One is that, that in the communal sharing uh, motivation, you would actually – sacrificing for the sake of the group is a duty, right? I haven't said – I haven't said sacrificing other members of the group is, is a duty. Maybe – personal sacrifice, but this is intentionally causing harm to another person. This isn't that. This is intentionally causing harm to another person. The prediction is simply that we will have different intuitions about harm depending on which model. Ah, okay, okay. See, that's a different claim. And now the claim becomes circular. If all you're saying is that the motives for doing for causing intentional harm differ depending on your motives, then where what's the substance of this claim? The the promise here is that it's going to explain the content of this difference that that you will have a different view of intentional harm uh, specifically about whether it's right or wrong to harm someone intentionally right. if you're in communal sharing than rather than w- like than the animal rights you know like i will think that it's i will be much more likely belief. to think that it's wrong i would be much more likely to think that it's wrong to harm another animal for the sake of some sort of scientific advance and some disease if i consider animals if i'm looking at animals through the communal but that's sharing. not about motivation tamla that's a claim about the specific view of whether animals are in your community or not. The claim here has to be, if it's going to be a falsifiable theory, it has to be that just feeling com- – being in that communal relational motive will make you more likely to believe that animals should be protected or not. But the truth of the matter is being in that communal sharing mode – can sometimes make you want to kill animals no, no, for the I, sake I of protecting. You're all, you're, it, in order for it to work, it has to be linked somehow to the content of the belief, or else it's not a theory of moral disagreement. All I'm saying is that even when, in an instance where you're in primarily a communal sharing mode, that does not predict whether or not you what your view of animal rights is. Because you could be in communal sharing mode, you could have that motivation, you could have it central, and I still think that sometimes you would be an animal rights activist and sometimes you would not. 
And I don't think that the communal sharing motivation predicts whether or not you're going to be an animal rights activist. It can predict how you feel about your judgment about animal rights because you've tossed them into the community, but it can't predict whether or not you toss them into the community, which is at the heart of moral disagreement. Yeah, we're not disagreeing, I think, about the content of the theory or, you know, what it's offering. I think we're, we're disagreeing about the value of what it's offering. And your point there is what you want to know is why some people view animals as part of right. the community and other people just view them in a kind of more market pricing way. And I agree with that. I do think it's interesting, though, as a, you know, intermediate step to recognize that, that even if you don't know why, each of these frameworks are being or models are being applied, that they're being applied and that this, proximally at least, can explain these kinds of moral disagreements is a valuable tool. Well, I mean, I agree with everything except for the the part where you just granted that it can proximally explain disagreements because I don't think that it can. But the value of the model, I think we do agree. I mean, I think that this is a really, really valuable model for understanding moral motivation. Uh, it my my only the, the what I've been arguing for the past however long is just that um, I think it ca- it writes a check that it doesn't cash about about explaining moral disagreement because I think that the most the most interesting part of moral disagreement is in fact the things that it can't explain I, everything else I think that the right but that would be a that's a bit that's a very damning but that's what they say no I know but you're like it's 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 valuable in explaining things we're not really interested in. But, no, it's uh, not. It's valuable uh, in explaining the source of moral motivation, but that's not that's not moral disagreement, right? Oh, so, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, right. so there is a deep psychology to moral motivation. That I mean, let, let me give you a, a quick example. Two people can believe the very same thing: you ought not kill animals for food, and one person might believe it because the amount of money that we spend on the whole practice of killing animals could be used to save our kids and the other person or or to feed the world. And the other person might believe because animals are a member of our community, we ought not to kill them and they they have rights as well. So those, both of those people are actually in agreement about the moral claim that one ought not kill animals to eat them, but their motivation, the the, the motivation that got them there is very different. Now there are some instances where the, the moral motivation might actually push people to so so the the former person in market pricing mode might be more willing to make an exception than the latter person and maybe in those cases and empirical point, information will can change the the second the market pricing person's mind right exactly in, in more of a way than it could change the communal sharing right person. right 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 yeah. so 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 in that case I, I think then then I, I retreat a little bit those are cases where the motivation might be more directly tied to the source of disagreement it's just that. That in many cases, you know, I, I'm not sure that this actually yields any fruitful predictions about why people disagree. All right. Well, we definitely have to do a part two of this. We didn't even talk about the moral normative or metaethical implications where I think I disagree with the paper more than you do, or at least we disagree on that issue for different reasons. So I'm in communal sharing mode. That's why can't you just get in my mode and we would we would agree about <laughs> and the we, and ethical implications. And by the way, don't use your intuitions. Uh, I'm gonna clear up all of Dave's confusions <laughs> on the next episode, I think. Don't forget we have Will Wilkerson signed up and Laurie Santos, both the of which I'm very excited about as, as future guests. Join us next time on Very Bad Business. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. A very bad wizard.